Good afternoon and welcome to Blueprint for Efficiency, a webinar speaker series hosted by the Yale Center for Business and the Environment. My name is Robert Youngs and I will be your host for this afternoon's presentation titled Tackling a Final Frontier in Sustainability, Those Pesky Humans. The Yale Center for Business and the Environment is pleased to launch our sixth annual installment of Blueprint for Efficiency. This series of public webinars emphasizes the latest opportunity for energy efficiency. Each presentation is recorded and available on the Blueprint for Efficiency website. Be sure to check out our next webinar, Tuesday, March 18th, on energy efficiency finance with guests from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. In today's webinar, we explore resource efficiency and behavioral economics with our speakers Jenny Carney and Molly Zinzi. Jenny is lead fellow and principal at YRNG, a firm that provides strategic sustainability consulting services to organizations, buildings, and communities across the U.S. and internationally. Molly Zinzi is a facilities manager for Google based out of their New York office and uses technology and behavioral tools to manage the operations of over 800,000 square feet and nearly 4,000 Googlers. Finally, we would like to remind our listeners that we welcome any questions you might have and we will direct them to our speakers at the conclusion of the talk. You can type those questions directly into the GoToMeeting chat window, and we'll answer them at the end of the presentation. And with that, we welcome Jenny Carney to Blueprint for Efficiency. Hi, Jenny. I, don't, I think you might be muted on your end over there. Can you unmute your microphone? So we're experiencing some, some technical hiccups here. Let's make sure that uh, we get Jenny's microphone working and we'll, and we'll be back with you in a second here. Robert, can you hear me now? Uh, yes, we can. Okay. Perfect, thanks. So, uh, our session today, uh, as alluded to by the title, is all about how to engage humans in achieving sustainable outcomes, primarily in the context of buildings. Uh, I've been working as a sustainability consultant for about 10 years, uh, but I come from a background of environmental science, and if there was any way to avoid humans in the equation for reaching environmental outcomes, I'd be keen on it, but I've just concluded over time that there's no way to sort of get around engaging them in order to achieve the best possible outcomes. Uh, so we'll run through a few examples of kind of how human engagement of building occupants can uh, support those uh, sustainability and efficiency objectives. Uh, some of the strategies that are attempted um, but don't oftentimes have great results. Uh, and then some ideas for actually putting together a program uh, that is more potent. Uh, from there, we'll move into Molly's Google case study and do questions and answers at the end. So first off, uh, why do the people matter so much? Well, um, one reason why is that they're the most kind of expensive component of a building's life cycle. They're 
being used to house people, uh, provide workplaces for them, and the human experience uh, is really at the core function of any built environment. Uh, that in and of itself is a great reason to pay attention to them. Uh, but furthermore, they will sabotage you if they're not on your side. Uh, so I think oftentimes facilities managers or operating engineers of buildings might try to take the control away from the people so that they can really optimize the mechanical systems uh, and what have you. But people are clever and they'll find workarounds. So as in this example, uh, there's a thermostat that is tantalizingly placed behind a lockbox window uh, and the clever humans have figured out how to get around that lack of control by using an ice pack to manipulate the thermostat into triggering more heating for the space. Um, you actually see this a fair amount. Uh, recently, a colleague sent me this example uh, from a building uh, occupied by NASA where they had, you know, they were keeping the office temperatures intentionally low uh, because of a, a load issue and they have a lot of monitoring. You can see the spike when uh, some smart person got fed up with the situation uh, and took matters into his or her own hands. Uh, other kinds of aspects of human behavior uh, are important for different sustainability design features that we put into buildings. Uh, and we can really learn through post-occupancy evaluations of newly constructed spaces, for example, um, how our design strategies are really playing out. Uh, here's an example. It's common in LEED projects anyways to have a shower facility uh, so that people can commute via bicycle and so forth. Uh, but there's also a lack of storage in most buildings. So almost immediately uh, a bunch of junk just goes right into a, a shower scenario uh, in this example. Humans, of course, play a role in not just energy efficiency in buildings, but also kind of water consumption and waste management. Uh, waste audits can become very revealing about the extent to which there's an effective engagement program with people around recycling. Uh, these are the results from an audit that my company did on a Class A commercial office building in Denver, Colorado. Uh, interestingly, we found some high heels in the recycling. Uh, we found a lot of toilet paper in the trash. Uh, we also found uh, money, beer bottles, etc. It's a very revealing of human behavior what you find in a waste audit. Post-occupancy evaluations can also be used to understand uh, how well occupants are interacting with the controls and technologies that they have been given. Uh, many times there's a big lack of sort of handoff between the design of a space and its operational phase. Uh, in this case, there were all kinds of lighting controls, uh, but nobody who was occupying the space was really informed in how to use them. Uh, so they created this uh, red alert system involving uh, sticky notes to just avoid those switches altogether. And that brings up kind of a, a question of to what extent we can use complicated technologies to help achieve efficiency and high performance in buildings. I believe there's a tendency to maybe uh, lean too much on kind of technology and automation and not pay enough attention to whether or not the sort of human side of things is sophisticated enough to interact well. 
spectrum of toilet operation systems, I think, is a good example of that. Most folks know how to deal with the situation on the left. A lot of people uh, can figure out the middle strategy of a dual flush toilet, and I am personally terrified of what's going on with the control panel on the right. Uh, so pairing up the right level of kind of technical, technological complexity and investment in training of the humans is an important piece uh, that I think is oftentimes overlooked. Uh, just having kind of an interest in performance data in the first place is another piece of human engagement and getting higher performing buildings. Uh, there's been a lot of press over the years about a lead for new construction projects not necessarily kind of performing at high levels even though they had um, you know high efficiency design strategies and processes in place. Uh, part of that is maybe because they're just not taking the next step of engaging with the performance data once the building is up and running. Uh, this study from the New Buildings Institute found that 78% uh, of lead buildings weren't even really tracking their energy and water performance uh, in an ongoing systematic way. Uh, of course, that leads to uh, various kinds of um, press and it has also led to the U.S. Green Building Council encouraging uh, or requiring actually that lead buildings have a strategy for uh, tracking and transmitting to USGBC their performance data. I like to sort of think of this design versus operations um, conundrum as a question of the metrics of intent versus the metrics of performance. And I think to achieve sustainability and energy efficiency goals, uh, we really should be trying to use both of them as effectively as possible. Uh, so metrics of intent would be using design processes like energy modeling uh, to kind of put out the best possible buildings, but then using the metrics of performance to engage in an ongoing question about what's going well and what stands to be improved. Uh, and those metrics of performance are really oftentimes an indicator, not just of equipment performance, but of kind of human engagement either at the level of the building engineers or the building occupants themselves. The strategies that we see uh, being deployed for human engagement, uh, there tend to be some kind of common themes in where we try to get started. And this kind of even goes back to early environmentalism where the messaging was really couched primarily in the sense of loss. And humans are loss averse. Um, they don't like the idea of you know, losing something that they have. But it's not actually very motivating. Um, people need sort of to feel uh, as though they have a purpose or a role to play in an actual solution uh, in order to really feel engaged. And I think green building uh, has been very effective from shifting away from just a conversation about you know, environmental loss and more towards a conversation of here's what we can do about it. Here is sort of a codified set of strategies uh, that we can all participate in towards better buildings 
uh, better communities and a better environmental outcome. There's lots of studies that show that um, when we try to kind of put together information campaigns and that sort of thing regarding sustainability, uh, there's not a very direct link between uh, information and behavior change. And even having a good attitude doesn't correlate to good behavior. Uh, we choose these campaigns but they, because they're you know, comparatively easy, uh, but I think we really have to be kind of considering how effective they are uh, given the resources they require. And, you know, I know this to be true personally. There's all kinds of behaviors of my own that I would like to see improve, but to actually habituate something new uh, is a very difficult enterprise, even when you're very motivated and, you know, presumably in control of yourself. Uh, so influencing the behavior of an entire uh, kind of building or tenant space full of all kinds of different personalities is quite, uh, quite a chore. Uh, we also know from uh, various studies that offering financial benefits um, is not as motivating as you might expect. Uh, there's many utility programs that have uh, energy efficiency incentives, basically free money to give away uh, to save more money, um, but their uptake and usage rate is oftentimes quite low. And, um, you know, a, a potential reason for that is that we're not as financially motivated as we may think at first glance. Lead signage is, uh, I think, uh, definitely an example of kind of going into an information campaign because it feels relatively straightforward. Uh, and so something that I've been, you know, trying to be aware of in my work in lead buildings is how to push the boundaries around engagement and occupant education to move past just these informational signs, uh, which can be useful, but to really try to get more at the heart of how you influence behavior within a building in a way that's not creepy or controlling. Um, here's another example of kind of just using signage to get around or outside of intuitive design and understanding of human behavior. Uh, this, of course, is a dual flush toilet handle where one direction is, uh, you know, a low flush and the other direction is a high flush. Uh, anything that requires so much signage explanation is probably uh, not intuitive enough to be, uh, you know, really effective in engaging behaviors. And I've heard uh, on the street that actually uh, many people aren't interested in touching these handles with their hands, so they just like karate kick them uh, with their foot using a full flush every time because it's easier to kind of stomp down on them than kick up at them. So what can we do that is a little different than just an information campaign, but actually allows humans in energy efficiency. And I think behavioral economics is um, a great kind of way to frame your understanding of how to influence human behaviors. Uh, this is a kind of relatively recent uh, line of thinking uh, among economists where they finally come around to realizing that humans aren't just kind of robotic, rational economic actors. Um, 
but you know we're actually very quirky uh, and it's difficult to tease out how our, our different social dynamics and behaviors are going to be influenced. Uh, I find that evolutionary biology is actually a really great lens for trying to understand human behavior and using that as a starting point for understanding motivations uh, helps us to develop better, more effective uh, engagement campaigns. I think a, a great example of kind of evolutionary biology at work and how we're motivated is uh, humans are, are sort of known to be not super effective at uh, addressing issues that don't have a direct causal relationship. So climate change is incredibly difficult because there's this you know long-term invisible problem building up and it's really difficult to motivate human action around it. We're much better at taking action uh, from a direct kind of acute threat or relationship. Like we know what to do when we see a lion roaring. Uh, a slowly kind of ramping up of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is not something that people sort of viscerally respond to uh, in a way that yields actions. Uh, I actually had uh, the sort of good fortune recently to observe a study in behavioral economics that is happening at the Lincoln Park Zoo um, by a scientist named Lydia Hopper and others that examines behavioral economics in chimpanzee groups. And uh, there's actually incredible parallels between uh, how this group of chimpanzees has uh, developed and spread an innovative behavior and how humans kind of operate in a workplace type setting. Um, so in this particular experiment, uh, the chimps are given uh, tokens, these kind of PVC tubes were placed into their area, and then if they sort of exchange those tokens through a grate, they'll get either a carrot uh, if they go to the nearby grate, or a grape, which is more delicious to them, if they walk a bit around the bend. Uh, so they had to sort of discover that these tokens could be exchanged in this manner. It's sort of like a, an economy that was invented and they had to learn the rules through trial and error. Uh, and then they also had to uh, sort of disseminate this behavior you know, throughout the, the grouping. Uh, and there's, again, very interesting parallels between how humans change their behavior. Uh, the strongest ones don't tend to do a new behavior. Uh, in this troop, there's kind of a staunch head honcho named Hank who was quite a laggard when it came to uh, taking up this behavior and exchanging the tokens. Uh, and you can kind of uh, think of that as analogous to a curmudgeon in the office who's not going to try anything new until probably everyone else has been doing it for a year and there's a fair amount of pressure to make that behavior change. A resource that I found that I think is useful in tackling these problems is the website Fostering Sustainable Behavior, uh, community-based social marketing. Uh, a fellow ca called Doug McKenzie Moore is uh, behind this and it basically sets up a process by which you can uh, try to learn the nuances of a specific context and then come up with an engagement program that will be effective. 
I think the good news is that you don't have to just think up all the answers of how to influence behavior. Uh, you instead need kind of a, a set of tools that you'll use in a trial and error type fashion uh, to figure out what's going to work with any given population of people. Um, so the first step in this is identifying uh, barriers to that behavior change, uh, and that's going to be different depending on uh, who's involved and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, look at your toolkit and see what uh, seems appropriate to the situation. Uh, that might be things like real-time feedback, commitments, etc. Uh, do a pilot um, before you spend a fortune. Uh, it's, it's, I think, very prudent to do pilots of human behavior campaigns because it's really easy to miss the mark um, because humans are squirrely. <laughs> Uh, and then finally having sort of feedback loops or metrics by which you can uh, kind of gauge the effectiveness and do refinement over time uh, is the final component of this process. A couple of examples of things that are kind of out there in the world that have proven somewhat successful is uh, sort of not taking on a nagging uh, sort of type role but just more gentle communication nudges to prompt the desired behavior. Changing the default choice. Um, if something is inconvenient, it takes a lot more uh, kind of effort to get over the hump of changing that behavior. So in this example, you could, for example, for printing, just automatically set everything to two-sided and then somebody has to set it back to single-sided if that's their jam. Uh, there's examples within behavioral economics economics of doing this for other kinds of things that you know are seen as desirable behaviors like opting employees into a, you know a retirement savings account and then they have to sort of do the work to get out of it if they're not interested. Making things appealing, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, in this case, uh, stairwells are oftentimes in some dark, dank corner of, of many buildings, and so then uh, there's very little uh, sort of reason for people to take those stairs unless they're particularly committed to doing so. So there's been a trend in, in green building to have these sort of big, beautiful upfront staircases, uh, and people actually use them. That attractiveness translates into other human behaviors too, uh, such as how much uh, school kids eat fruit. Uh, in this example, uh, a behavioral engineer recommended changing around the lunch line to put fruit in a very attractive bowl uh, right at sort of the end of the line. Uh, the lunch lady in this case was skeptical, uh, but was game to give it a try. And what they found was that within a couple of months, uh, they had sold four times the amount of fruit uh, the lunch lady was stunned by the results and she was also out of fruit and had to change her ordering scheme. Along the same lines of attractiveness, there's sort of to be kind of a piano leading up out of the subway. And once they sort of made that adjustment, people were having a grand old time using the, the staircase instead of the escalator. Uh, that financial component has been demonstrated to be 
you know, somewhat effective to give people a, a monetary incentive, but actually just getting them to make a social commitment is just as effective, uh, which I think speaks to uh, the power of social norms and our social commitments to each other. Uh, simple requests can also have a great deal of influence. Uh, a lot of toilet paper is thrown out in commercial buildings uh, because the janitorial staff just reloads uh, whenever they're going through the space. Uh, so s some buildings that I've seen uh, in Chicago where I am have come up with the solution of just putting a little sticker uh, on all of the rolls except for one saying help reduce waste, please use the other roll. Uh, it works. I, I checked each and every stall. Other subtle messaging uh, includes things like, um, you know, transitioning away from calling things, calling waste trash or garbage to labeling it as landfill. Uh, people are more likely to recycle when you use that messaging. Um, for smoking uh, proximate to entryways, uh, oftentimes the strategy is to have a tiny print little uh, sign on the doorway that people stand next to while they're smoking. Uh, I've seen some buildings uh, try this different tactic of uh, literally painting a line uh, that should not be crossed on the ground. Uh, recognition is, is powerful, again, because of our, our social inclinations. Uh, so one thing that we've been trying to do uh, within our lead projects is to uh, make a point of, of giving kudos to the participants in a way that's more public uh, than just, you know, within the internal team. And then the last uh, examples I have are really specific to energy efficiency uh, and uh, the sort of idea of normal social behaviors. Um, before we get to the energy examples, I think a, an interesting thing that has been happening uh, recently is the science around our immune systems and uh, increased incidences of asthma and autoimmune disease and so on in people. You know, basically, uh, the lesson being that uh, we're chock full of microbes and most of them are very beneficial to us. And so a lot of the hygiene campaigns of yesteryear have created uh, people who are quite obsessive around cleanliness and disinfecting. Uh, but that's actually creating a lot of health problems. And so now we're, we have to kind of battle back against that and uh, figure out how to make it feel okay for people to uh, coexist peacefully uh, alongside of germs and microbes. Um, I recommend if you have a baby, for example, uh, considering whether or not it's getting access to enough dirt to eat um, because it really is uh, much healthier. Uh, but knowing that we have to kind of deal with those social norms, uh, we can use them to our benefit. Uh, in this example, uh, everybody's familiar with these uh, hotel placards that ask you uh, to not get your, you know, towels washed each night and so on. And this is not proved to be uh, very effective. Uh, with that kind of message that's just like a kind of save the environment deal, you might get around 30% participation rates. Uh, some hotels have changed the messaging there and have actually, instead of saying, please help the environment, say something more along the lines of, most of the guests who stay in this room use their towels more than once. And by having that shift in messaging, you get closer to a 50% participation rate in those types of programs. 
uh, in this example, uh, there was a, a community in Oregon, I believe, that had a residential utility audit incentive program where they wanted all of these houses in the neighborhoods to undergo an audit uh, and hopefully, you know, get a critical mass signed up so that the auditors could very efficiently just go from one house to the next. Um, they were hoping that maybe they'd be able to get about 20 or 30 percent of the homes signed up. Uh, but then they came up with this idea to dispatch a Boy Scout uh, from door to door saying, uh, all of your neighbors are getting this audit, would you like this audit as well? Uh, and with that tactic, they had an incredible 90% uh, participation rate. Another uh, example of kind of using your neighbors <laughs> to influence your residential energy consumption comes from the strategy that was used by the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. Uh, they wanted to uh, kind of get residential customers uh, to sort of conserve energy so there'd be less stress on the grid. So they started by switching their utility bill to show the spectrum of consumption uh, and show folks where they fell on that spectrum compared to their neighbors. Um, and it sort of worked. The, the people that were using more energy uh, move towards the average um, and then there are also people kind of using less energy but in fact they also move towards the average uh, everybody just started drifting towards the middle the normal uh, area so they had to, to change their strategy a bit which they did um, by adding a smiley face on the the good side of the spectrum uh, to reinforce that that was uh, the desired outcome they actually had a frowny face as well uh, at some point, but they received so many complaints uh, from people who really disliked getting a frowny face that they had to take that component away. Um, so it seems a little bit silly, but uh, it's, it's true that many of us just like to get smiley faces uh, from our peers. Uh, there's uh, real-time kind of uh, energy use indicators are another example of trying to tap into that same uh, reinforcement of good behavior. Uh, this is an example at Oberlin College. Uh, and once they have these installed in some of their dorms, they've been able to kind of set up uh, competitions between the students uh, and so forth. So with that, I will turn it over to Molly to give you the lowdown on the program being used at Google. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, just confirming with Robert, everyone can see my screen? Uh, one second. Okay. Jenny, can you see my screen? Uh, yes. Okay, here we go. Uh, so thank you, Jenny. Uh, there's a lot of great information um, that Jenny is speaking about that is directly applicable to the way that we work at Google. Um, I'm going to talk specifically about a case study regarding our Sustainable Pursuit program. So there's a lot of great information online at google.com slash green. And um, just to help frame up the conversation for what we've done, um, this, these are, you know, we have all kinds of, of real sustainable goals for the company. So that translates to our transportation programs, our buildings, um, 
our, our data centers um, across the board. So there's there's a lot of really great things that we're doing. But um, in, in particular, how, how do we engage our users? Um, we know that you know, if we focus on the user, everything else will follow. So we really want to focus on people and our building operators around the world. So to frame that up for this conversation, today we're in about 395 buildings in 135 cities and 57 countries. So we, we truly do have a global portfolio. And we really care about our people. We want to have the healthiest workforce on the planet. And our facilities managers um, at all of our sites globally are really responsible for the, for the human health and well-being of, of our, our spaces that we, that we design and we operate. And how do we, as a global company, um, capture achievement in a global portfolio? Uh, how do we how do we capture and compare a bottled water reduction in India versus a waste audit um, that we're, we've conducted in our headquarters in Mountain View, and and how do we work together in a collaborative way in order to really start to achieve some of these big goals that we've set for ourselves? So we work Google. We like to have a lot of fun, um, and we we need our products to be. Um, Simple, engaging, um, thought-provoking, amazing, world-changing. We have all these, like I said, we have all these big goals for ourselves. So internally, um, when we create programs for ourselves, it can be super challenging. Uh, but we know we love games. We know lead works. And so a few years ago, um, we got together with some other folks at Vernado and the GSA to participate in a pilot project with the USGBC. And, um, Vernado has their own approach for their global portfolio. The GSA had their own approach. And for Google, we took an approach um, surrounded and modeled after a Trivial Pursuit game. So we, we, we basically took the lead rating system and um, used that as the baseline for capturing information. And then what we did is we asked, um, we asked a few folks at first um, through a pilot project to participate in capturing information. So, um, how, how can we achieve points in all these different areas that would ultimately, what we're really doing on the back end is populating information for a global portfolio. So all of our lead spaces that we have in existence, um, we could ultimately file for um, OEM or lead EBOM. Um, so what that really does is um, puts us in fierce competition against each other. And the facilities managers in New York um, are competing with our facilities managers in Zurich to have um, the highest rating in our, on, in our sustainable pursuit program. So, um, you know, I am very proud of this slide because it shows that number one ahead of some of our counterparts in other areas in the Americas. But um, what it's really doing for the company is um, furthering our sustainable goals, saving us tons of money, um, and engaging folks to make some pretty significant changes. So um, what does that have to do with people? We're operators. We, we're building operators. We have building engineers. We have um, our outsourced vendor partners. Um, we're all working together to achieve these goals. And the real reason is to make the experience for the Googler at work the best we can. We want the uh, healthiest workforce on the planet, and we want we have so much data, we want our users engaged in the process with us. Um, but it's really all about the Google experience, their health and well-being, how sustainability supports
support that, and then the value and the innovation in, in the slide that we've shown here. And what does that mean for us, our team? Well, sometimes we gotta jump in the in the in the waste can and figure out what's in there and 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 trace it back. But um, as you can see from the slide, we we love our jobs. We have lots of fun doing that. Um, because we know it's really going to make the experience the best it can be for the Googler. Um, so on, on the site that I referenced earlier, google.com slash green, um, there's a lot of great information about how we're going beyond zero. And um, there's some really fun videos that, that you can find on the site as well that talk about our different programs and um, what we're doing in this building. But um, this is, you know, this is just a, this is just a little snapshot into into our world, and um, and we really we really know that as operators, as facility managers, our it's our responsibility um, to to make it easy. And you know, there were so many slides that Jenny showed that I know I would get all kinds of tickets and complaints about because um, our users really do care. They they really have such a tremendous amount of pride in their workspace. And um, we have such an open door policy that if there's a way that we can make things better, we want to engage in that process and engage with our with our folks. Um, so we're you know we we are we know how challenging the human element is, and we are like running with arms open towards that challenge to try to figure out how we can best work together. And for us, that means a lot of um, information sharing and. Um, Slicing and dicing a lot of data to to make better decisions, but but really I can tell you that most of the decisions that we make come from conversations about um, the experience of of our of our folks of our Googlers. Um, so the data is always a supporting argument, but really it it's got to come from the person because ultimately um, they're the folks who are here. Um, cranking out the, the the most amazing products that um, that ultimately will hope, hopefully change the world. So um, that's my presentation. I'll hand it back over to Jenny and Robert. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think I want to want to thank both you guys for for taking the time. It was a uh, Great presentation, and we, we do have some some questions here from the audience. Uh, I can start throwing them out here. Um, question here: Are there any indications that messaging such as the smiley face energy bills are more successful in some jurisdictions, e.g., California, than others, or is this a universal uh, kind of behavior thing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I know that a lot of utilities have adopted that model, uh, including some on the East Coast. Um, I haven't heard of any kind of studies that try to compare the efficacy between them, but at this point there's probably close to enough of them that they could start digging into that. Um, I, I, it's a great question, how, how universally interested in smiley faces are we? Uh, and I think that's, I wish I had an answer, but that's exactly the right kind of question to be asking as you develop a program in the context of, you know, your own building or your own community and so on. Great. Thanks. We've got a question here from Frank. Uh, Jenny, do you see LEAD evolving into to incorporate lessons learned from behavioral studies? For example, 
how can we be designed to prevent building operators from using showers as storage closets? <laughs> Um, I think I think it's entirely possible. Um, I think there's still a lot of work that has to be done to kind of bring those uh, operational lessons into uh, a design process. Um, the integrated is, I think, a good example of the step a step in the right direction. Um, but I also see there being um, you know, to me, uh, passive design strategies, uh, you know, good old-timey passive design strategies are often really appropriate um, because they don't require a lot of sophisticated human interaction. But there's a tendency to not really sort of use them because at least, you know, part of the design world is, you know, pretty enamored of using increasingly advanced technology. So I think there's kind of two camps uh, in terms of uh, a willingness to kind of go uh, a simple human-centric kind of route. Sure, yeah. Um, we've got another question here uh, for, from, for Molly. How does the sustainability trivia game work? So uh, each site tries to get a piece of the pie. So each pie piece is representative of a certain number of um, questions. So it's essentially, it's like taking the lead rating system and you divide you divide the pie up. So sustainable sites is one section, indoor air quality is another section, and all those different slices make up the pie. So um, once once your site submits enough points and you get all of your pie pieces, um, you you've won the game. And um, and then on the back end, there's um, all the information that's submitted that is centralized in one um, database in our headquarters in Mountain View. So then we have all the necessary information to file for um, additional lead rating systems. So we can take a CI space and then file for, for EBOM. Great. Um, got a question there. What advice would you give to to small to small company with a handful of branch offices spread? over several states, uh, we lack the resources of a Google to create robust competition programs. Transparency. Um, if you have a small site and um, if you have a, if you have many locations and a, and a small team, um, we've done pilot projects where we had a power number, excuse me, a power numbers competition and we were just transparent with people about their energy usage and um, that, that that fostered enough competition, um, and you know those really inexpensive, obnoxious, huge trophies go a long way. We have quite a few of those around the office here, <laughs> and they're they're won with pride. But um, we that was a prize for our energy uh, power numbers competition, and it worked. It was it was enough. Great. Um, yeah, um, I have a couple of thoughts to add to that. Um, sure. Small, smaller kind of groups of people are in some ways easier um, because you don't have as much kind of variability necessarily. Uh, but to Molly's point, I think it, you can have a simple like form of engagement around competition. I'd re recommend maybe picking one area of focus at a time if you're strapped for resources. Uh, so maybe pay attention to energy for a while and then after you've kind of habituated good behaviors there, kind of move on to, you know, some other energy-related specific thing or water efficiency or, or something else. But 
usually like 30 to 60 days is necessary to really get people to have a, a behavior ingrained and become habit. So having a duration that's long enough to accomplish that is important. Great, thanks. Got another question here uh, for Jenny. You mentioned that financial incentives are not very effective in motivating behavior. How do we convince regulators that other strategies can be more effective than incentives, especially when non-participants often claim their cost is the number one barrier? Uh, yes, so there is a, a disconnect between what studies show as like how people react to financial incentives and what people will tell you is the barrier. Um, that is not uncommon. Um, hopefully as there are programs like the smiley face and so forth that um, are using other strategies or using them in conjunction with financial incentives, Ultimately, there'll be enough data, hopefully, that regulators can feel confident in kind of moving towards different programs. So, you know, I think some of the more innovative utilities will put stuff out there, and then if it's demonstrated to be effective, I think there will be a, a kind of slow spread of those tactics. your change. For example, how many change from I'm sorry, Robert, you were breaking up a, a bit for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, the question is, are there any good resources out there for sort of parsing out or calculating the metrics from behavior change as opposed to other savings from mechanical or technical up upgrades and fixes? Sure. Uh, that is a good question. Um, I'm wrestling with that exact issue um, in considering a potential project uh, right now that involves a kind of multifamily residential scenario. Um, I think a lot of the tools that are used in kind of energy audits where you look at trend data uh, to determine kind of base loads will help you to get a sense of what part of uh, an energy profile is actually, you know, more directly influenced by uh, humans. Uh, so that's, that's one option is to try to really use uh, actual consumption data to parse out the different loads. Um, and you can use submeters for that. You can use, you know, algorithms uh, calculation-wise to try to zero in on that. Um, and then also you can use statistical analysis that's a little more sophisticated to uh, try to tease out uh, whether or not the effect uh, that is being seen is attributable to, you know, different strategies. So multivariate regression analysis can be deployed uh, in that fashion if you've got uh, statistical chops. Okay, thanks. Got another question here. Uh, if it takes at least 30 to 60 days to make good behaviors routine, is there a maximum amount of time that an organization should run a behavior change program? And is there a, a fatigue factor? 
I think, um, I'd be curious what Molly has to say, but I think um, with gamification type strategies, uh, there's definitely a fatigue factor that you can see. Um, so uh, one question is if you're kind of getting somebody in engaging in a behavior that will become a default or if they're doing something that is novel and it's going to fall away. Uh, and if it's not convenient or it doesn't kind of have those aspects of joy and attractiveness and delight, uh, I think it's more likely to fall away. So hopefully you can pull people to a behavior that actually offers something back to them once they do it on a routine basis. Yeah, that's, yeah, I would completely agree with Jenny. We tend to send our post-occupancy surveys out when we open new space, um, three months after we, um, after we open our new space. And we find, that, um, we find that we kind of have a, well, everything is accelerated here at Google. We move incredibly fast. But um, so for us, you know, pilot periods are more like a month at the most. Um, our users get uh, bored very quickly. They, um, they like to constantly tweak the model. So um, a month is like our max, where I think in most organizations, um, a three-month window would seem a little bit more appropriate. Great. A uh, question for Molly. How does Google justify sustainability investments uh, with little direct payback? For example, purchasing renewable energy credits uh, and carbon offsets. Great question. Um, so carbon offsets has been a really super big challenge for us because I mean, ultimately we want to do the right thing. And I think there is an external perception that we have kind of an unlimited cash flow, and so we, we can always try to do the right thing, even if there's not a monetary um, payback. So, but that, um, I, I want to say that's not true. Um, we're held to very tight budgets. <laughs> we, do, we do have kind of like a global um, metric that we use for building out square feet, and that includes soup to nuts lead projects. So um, it's, it's super challenging. Uh, we don't have a good answer on that one. Um, what we try to do is um, look at the, the cost within the overall project. And um, we do have a payback timeline that we review. Um, but what we really want to do is change the market. So I'll give you an example around toxicity. Um, we eliminated, we had a pilot project in New York here, 80,000 square feet CI project where um, we eliminated any kind of known toxic chemicals and we had all of our folks participate in the Faro in the database and, and be transparent with information um, that was in their project. So all of our manufacturers had, had to participate in this in order to get their projects back on site. Um, and we, we found that Armstrong actually went back and changed um, one of their products. They went back and re-engineered one of their ceiling tiles that didn't meet our criteria. Um, so we were able to then purchase that ceiling tile that then met our criteria, and then that product was available on the open market for everybody else. So we like to see opportunity where um, if, there, if there's an opportunity to move the market, it's worth the investment, and if there's an opportunity to have some, um, some significant change in a campus, then, then it is worth the investment. But it's not a, um, the ROI model is not, not always applicable, so it's, uh, it's super tough. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I have a question for Jenny here. Many of, of your great examples deal with the engagement of the human user of a building. Have you any advice for getting the property manager, the property owner, past their resistance to change, to incorporate 
new sustainable initiatives, um, particularly if there's a there's a business case for it. Uh, yes. So I think um, a lot of the same kind of uh, concepts apply to the people who are kind of owning or operating the facilities. Um, and I guess there are two pieces of that, you know, just kind of like uh, for the folks who've been told that they have to do this sustainability business, like how do you kind of go from that somewhat unfortunate starting point to a more fruitful territory? Uh, and things like smiley faces actually do help with that. <laughs> Um, but when it comes to actually like getting the decision makers who you know control the the financial kind of investments, it's uh, I think a, a pretty painstaking process of starting small and kind of uh, graduating up to uh, more and more comfort on their part in making those investments. I think like basic lead certification can kind of be a gateway drug in that sense. Um, and we've uh, had a lot of clients where the first time around they didn't want any bells and whistles. They just knew they wanted to get lead and like go through the process and you know nothing extra. Uh, but through that, you know, if you you do it right, you can really start to kind of show value um, in pursuing some of the more kind of uh, advanced or sophisticated strategies. Uh, but it's really relationship building and takes a lot of like. Uh, accumulation of you know successes in kind of smaller type territory uh, before you can get to that influential point of getting them to to kind of go outside of their comfort zone. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. I have a, a question here. How do you strike a balance between high technology solutions that may be successful, such as occupant sensors and smart thermostats, uh, and strategies that require more input from humans, which seem to be more disengaged and irrational uh, in their behavior. Uh, I've seen a couple of good uh, kind of middle ground strategies around that. Um, like for example, you could give occupants thermostats within their spaces but restrict them to only being able to manipulate the temperature within you know maybe like a six degree range or something. Uh, so that you don't kind of end up with the really unfortunate, you know, somebody jacked the heat up to 90 and left for the weekend uh, type scenarios. Um, you can similarly have a lot of like uh, override capability so that, you know, somebody can adjust set points, but uh, it doesn't go too long before they're kind of set back uh, to uh, the original default, um, which uh, kind of similarly avoids that uh, scenario of the weekend excessive heating. Great. I, I, Jenny, I just yeah. want to add, I agree with you 100%, and um, the most successful space that we have on campus um, has some similar controls that, that do those things, um, but what really helps is when our building engineer will, will swing by the desk and, and um, have a chat with, with our Googler and, and explain um, what adjustments they've made and how to use the controls, and just that, that, that one little bit of interaction with the operator um, has made all the difference. I've seen a huge dramatic reduction in tickets from the areas where our techs actually go out and, and engage with our occupants and, and have that little extra little bit of learning and, and education on how the system works. So that's been huge for us. Great. Uh, I think we'll, we'll take one more question here. Um, uh, question from Jesse. 
there seems to be a lack of training as buildings are handed over from designers and builders to the occupants. One reason for this problem is that builders and designers don't have an incentive to properly train occupants. Is there any movement in the marketplace to pay for training on how to use a building's features? For example, in case um, where there aren't engaged facilities managers employed by the occupying companies. Well, well that was for me. I missed it. Oh. Uh, I can chime in here. Um, I think that I totally agree that that is a kind of phenomenon that occurs often and that part of the reason is a lack of incentive uh, for sure. I think that when it comes to um, owner-occupied buildings, it's a different situation because the owner has to kind of like take on the cost of operating the building and therefore it's a little easier to convince them to kind of see operator training as insurance that they're actually getting the returns on their kind of capital investments in high efficient equipment and so on. Um, in other buildings, you're not going to have that same kind of long-term operational cost motivator. Uh, I think programs like LEED, as they move towards requiring more attention to performance data, will help to create some of that pressure in the marketplace. Um, and, you know, I would love to actually see more kind of, you know, simple performance-based comparisons of buildings uh, come out of the municipal benchmarking and disclosure laws that are cropping up uh, and that sort of thing. Great. Well, well, thank you guys so much. That, that concludes our, our talk here today. We, we really want to thank Jenny and, and Molly for joining us today and, and taking the time. We, we had some great questions and, and enjoyed the talk. Uh, if, if, if people would like to view a recording of this webinar, you can visit the Yale Center for Business and the Environment website. Uh, all Blueprint for Efficiency links are under the Outreach tab. And please do Join us on Tuesday, March 18th for the next webinar on energy efficiency finance with guests from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. This is Robert Youngs from the Yale Center for Business and the Environment saying so long and thank you from New Haven, Connecticut.